Thank you again for singing uh, well with this. It is well with my soul. It is a wonderful hope that we have in Christ. This is time for Children's Church. So for those who are age three through kindergarten, you can make your way towards the back at this point. And I'm also glad to welcome up a friend and a brother. This is Cole Younger. Uh, while Pastor Aaron is busy serving and doing his thing at the camp out today, uh, very grateful that Cole said yes to preaching his very first sermon uh, today while Aaron's gone. So how about that? Yeah. Uh, he'll probably be checking in later, I'm sure. So. <laughs> Let me just say that... Uh, Many of you know Cole. Cole is a dedicated husband and a father. He's a great teacher. He's a friend. But most of all, he loves the Lord. He loves God's word. And he's here to share with us this morning. So blessings to you, brother. Appreciate it, Russ. Yeah, I wanted to first off say thank you for your... For the, the many people that texted me saying they were praying for me this morning, I, I can say I feel the peace that the Lord has given me. Um, so thank you for that. I'm always encouraged by you guys. Like Russ said, Aaron is in Utah serving with the team there, but he'll be back next week where we'll jump back into Malachi 2, I believe. But for those of us who are here today, open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. That'll be our focus today. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And as we walk through this, through this I think a, a guiding question that'll be helpful for us this morning is this. Do you understand the gift that you have been given? And if so, what must that produce? If you are in Christ, do you understand the gift you've been given? And if so, what must that produce? I think everybody loves to give and receive gifts, right? If you didn't, I'd call you a liar. Everybody loves getting gifts. And I think there's basically two kinds of gifts. There's good gifts and there's bad gifts. Let's talk about the bad gifts first. Think back to a time when you've received a bad gift. Kids, this might be when you have been spending the last month talking your mom and dad's ear off about the newest toy or newest gadget or newest book, whatever you want for Christmas. And so Christmas comes and the time has finally come to open that gift and you open it up. And what are you met with? You're met with underwear and socks, right? Not inherently a bad gift, but compared to what you were expecting, it seems bad. Wives, wives, you are surely no stranger to a bad gift, no matter how long you've been married to your husband, right? The, the likelihood of receiving a bad gift increases the longer you've been married. Husbands, our job is to know our wives inside and out better than anybody else. And so when Christmas or her birthday or Mother Day, Mother's Day comes, we get a little overconfident, right? And so we go about and pick out this perfect gift that we think will um, elicit the response of just overflowing love and joy for the trophy husband that we think we are. So the time comes to give her that gift, and we're not met with that reaction. We're met with a confused look, and what, what is it? Oh, thank you, honey. I, I appreciate it. I love you. And our, us husbands don't catch on as quickly as we ought to, so we're standing there with our chin high, chest out, and all the confidence in the world that we just killed that gift. Meanwhile, our wives are standing there looking at their brand new paper shredder, wondering what in the world did I do to hint that I wanted this? I didn't do that. I won't say who, but that was a real story. Let's talk about good gifts. Think back to a time when you received a good gift. Kids, maybe you did get the toy or new gadget or new book that you wanted. Adults, maybe you did get new underwear and new socks and you're walking around with a renewed confidence because it's been a few years since you've had that. Everybody that laughed, I know who that's true for now. How many of us thought of our salvation as a good gift? 
I have two theories of why we didn't. First one being, you say, cool, that's not fair. We're on the topic of material things. My mind just wasn't going there. I say, yeah, that's, that's fair. But come on, we're in church. Where did you think I was going with this one? The other one is my, my fear. First, what do you do when you receive a gift? You look at the person in the eyes and you say, where's the receipt? How much do I owe you? What must I do to keep this gift safe or continuing earn, continue earning it? No, of course not. We don't say that because we understand what a gift is, right? We understand that a gift is free. It's free of any stipulation or expectation or requirement to keep or earn or keep that gift safe, right? A gift is freely given. So my fear is that some of us look at our gift of salvation and we look at God and say, okay, where's the receipt? How much do I owe you? What must I do to continue earning this gift or keep this gift safe? And friends, the answer is nothing. But we'll explore that as we look at this passage. So if you are willing and able, please stand with me as we read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, and consider the question, do I understand the gift I've been given? And if so, what must that produce? I'll read out of the ESV. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word, your perfect holy word. As we come before it, humble us, open our hearts and minds to hear it, make it more than just cold dead words on a page, but words that are active and alive and cause transformation in the hearts and minds of its hearers. Lord, we need you to help us understand that. Be with us. And we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So as we look at the broader context of 1 Timothy, Paul writes two reasons for writing this letter. The first one can be found in verse 3 of chapter 1, where Paul says, Remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. A few verses later, he says that their lack of sincere faith has caused them to wander away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. What a charge, right? That would, something nobody wants to be told about themselves. And then the second reason in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where he says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So there we go. Those are Paul's two reasons for writing First Timothy. First, to refute false teachers, and two, to restore order in the church. And so let's narrow our focus around our passage, and we'll see that Paul gives clarification of who the law is used for. His testimony here comes right after verses 9 and 10, where he is giving clarification for who the law is sent for. First Timothy doesn't explicitly tell us exactly the nature of the, the teaching that these false teachers were proclaiming, but we can deduce from what Paul writes and get a little bit of an idea of what they were teaching. 
And so these false teachers were not teaching the law as something that is holy, righteous, and good, but as possibly as something to be kept in order to earn righteousness or merit salvation. I think these are the people that Paul describes in Romans 10, 2-3, where he says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul says, no, no, no. The law used correctly is a good thing. It shows us God's holiness, our sin, and our necessity for a Savior. The law was not sent for those who can keep it and be justified by it, but it was sent for the lawless and disobedient. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 and 10 say, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul's telling Timothy here that you must not let this church relegate to believing in their own ability to keep the law in order to earn righteousness, but you must proclaim Christ and Christ alone for salvation. As he does that, he says, let me give you an example of what the Lord has done in my life and what the true gospel proclamation can do. And that brings us to verse 12 in Paul's testimony. And to walk through this, I think it's helpful to break this into five points. There's no slides, so you're just going to have to either remember it or write notes, and I'll go through them again as we walk through it. But those five points of Paul's testimony are, number one, the source. Number two, the object. Number three, the gift. Number four, the reason. And number five, the result. We'll look at those five aspects, the source, the object, the gift, the reason, and the result. Let's look at the first one, the source. We'll find this in verses 12 and 14, but I'll read 12 through 14 to prevent it from being a little too choppy. So look at verse 12 with me. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So after reading those two verses, who is the source? It's Jesus, right? If you had that Sunday school answer locked and loaded, good job, because that was the right answer. If you're like me, though, you read verse 12, and at a quick reading, you, it almost seems like Paul is saying that there's something good in him, and because that's something good that was in him, that is why God judged him faithful and appointed, me to his, and appointed him to his service. But this isn't something we know to be true of Paul's theology, what Paul thinks of sinners. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9-10. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's important to understand that God doesn't find faithful men and women. He makes faithful men and women. This is something true across the whole Bible. You look at the Old Testament, you look at Jesus' disciples and all those who are saved after. And you read that and you see that he chooses to use drunken, lying, thieving, murderous, adulterous people. And you say, what is going on? And it becomes very clear, very clear, very quickly that it is not because anything that is good in them, but because God chose to raise them up and appoint them to his service. 
Paul is destroying the idea that there's anything in us that has earned God's favor, that there is anything in us that was just so desirable that God couldn't turn a blind eye from. God is the sole source of any strength we have to live a life in service to him. We can look down at verse 14 and see another place where Paul points to the source of his salvation. Verse 14, he says, And the grace of our who? Our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in who? Christ Jesus. Paul is telling Timothy, look, you have to tell these guys that the source is not found in the law, nor their ability to keep the law. The source is found in Christ and Christ alone, and there is nothing that I have that did not come from Christ. God doesn't find faithful men and women. He makes faithful men and women. During the summers, I work at a golf course, and we do all sorts of things like what we call cutting cups. That's moving the hole around the green, mowing rough, mowing the collars and approaches, raking the bunkers, all things groundskeeping. Right? And so when I showed up my first day, they didn't say, hey, Cole, nice to meet you. Go out and mow these greens or go out and cut these cups. Right? They'd be foolish to do that. That course would look like garbage so quickly because I have no idea what I was doing. So what did they have to do? They had to train me. They had to equip me with the knowledge and the skills that I needed so that I could be considered trustworthy and faithful to go do that work on my own, right? And so it is with Christ. He is the source that raises up faithful people for his service. We're in a season of church planting, as you know. And there's been concerns raised that, you know, I don't think we have enough bodies to serve in the ministries that we have now. I don't think we have the bodies to fill the ministries that we have now. I think we're still in one service, and I think we should really be pushing two services before we consider planting a church. And so as Paul encourages and reminds Timothy of the source, allow me to encourage and remind us of the source, that the source of salvation of any lost souls, the source of growth of any ministry, and the source of growth of any church is not found in our hands or our ability, but in the hands of the one who is sovereignly reigning and ruling over all things. Praise the Lord, because if it were up to us, we'd screw it up. I know I can't even, I just did laundry this week, and I can't even do laundry without losing a sock. So you don't want me in charge of any ministry. That brings us to our next point, the object The object in verses 13 and 15, but again I'll read 13, 14, and 15. Look at verse 13 with me as we look at the object. Verse 13 says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And so, understanding that Christ is the source, who is the object the source acts upon? It's Paul, right? Specifically, Paul as a wretched sinner here. Verse 13, Paul is talking about what he formerly was. He says that I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. And some of your versions might translate insolent opponent as violent aggressor. There's a commentator who explains these well. He says the word blasphemer, meaning someone who speaks evil and slanders things against the Lord. Persecutor, meaning he subjected others to hostility and ill treatment. Insolent opponent or violent aggressor, meaning that he insulted people often because of their faith and often caused further injury because of it. And if that's still a little clear, still a little muddy, we can look at Paul's words himself as he testifies for his deeds in Acts 26. He says, 
I was myself convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul wasn't exactly the guy you were excited to see show up to the potluck, right? Right after that, at the end of verse 13, Paul tells Timothy he received mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. And what Paul is saying here, he's not saying, Timothy, this is how you manipulate God into showing you mercy. You just act like you don't know the rules, and when you get caught, you can play the ignorant card, right? I try this when I get pulled over for speeding. I have more speeding tickets than I'd care to admit. But what is the first question a cop asks you when you get pulled over? Some of you may not know him. Well done. But time and time, every time, the first question they ask is, do you know why I pulled you over? And my response is always, oh, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea. Dude, like, give me a break. You're going like 20 over. Get out of here. But I, I do that in hopes that my ignorance elicits mercy. And that's not how this works. Ignorance does not equal innocence in life nor before a holy God. We can look at the Old Testament and see this. Numbers 15, 20 through, 22 through 29, you don't have to turn there. But it's where God provides instructions to the Israelites on what they must do if an unintentional sin is committed. We can fast forward to the New Testament and look at Acts 13, or 3, 13 through 19, where Peter is telling people of what they had done in killing Jesus. In verse 17, Peter says, And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Paul is making the point here that although he did not confess Christ nor know the sins that he was committing, he was still guilty and his need for mercy was still a necessity because ignorance does not equal innocence. Not only that, but if you look down at verse 15, what does Paul say about himself there? Verse 15, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And if you're observant and paying attention, you say, wait a second, something doesn't make sense here. A few verses back, he was saying, I was these things, speaking in the past tense. Now he's saying, I am the foremost, speaking in the present tense. What's going on here? Is Paul contradicting himself? And that's just what this problem is. This problem is apparent. Because we look at this more and we look across other letters uh, that Paul writes, we can see that he has a proper understanding of sin in a redeemed person. And this is a good thing to do whenever you're reading your own Bible and your own study and you come across a seeming contradiction, because that's just what they are. It's seeming. It's not a problem with the inerrant word of God. It's the problem is with our finite, fallen minds. And so it's a good thing to look across other parts of the Bible to give clarification and shed light on a passage or a point from a different angle. And so that's what we'll do. We'll look across three different letters of Paul's and see that he does understand the redeeming work that Christ does in the hearts of those he redeems by his blood. Just listen. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Colossians 3.10, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we can see here that Paul is not saying that he is still the worst sinner in terms of ongoing sin that he is still committing. After all, Paul tells us to imitate him as he imitates Christ, and he wouldn't tell us that if he was still an entrenched in a life that loves sin. Here's how Paul Washer puts it. He puts it this way. He says, Paul is saying that he is the foremost as if he is holding a trophy of the greatest sinner ever saved. I love that. He's holding a trophy that is to his shame, but he understands it is to Christ's glory, so I will hold it high. How many of us would love to hold high a trophy that puts on display our shame? But you and I do the same thing, right? When we speak of our lives, um, we know that there are some sins that we no longer struggle with or seldom do by the grace of God and his sanctifying work in our lives. But we don't tell people that we were sinners, implying that we no longer sin, right? We tell people that we are sinners, but... Well, but what? What should follow that? We are sinners, but I have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Paraphrasing Galatians 2.20. Well, some of you may still be saying, well, no wonder Paul is saying that Christ is the sole source of his salvation here. Praise the Lord for divine intervention because that is the only way somebody like that could be saved. Thankfully, I don't have as much dirty laundry as Paul, so I think I'm still good. Well, friend, allow me to gently guide your eyes back to verses 9 and 10 where Paul talks about the law. I know I read it earlier, but I'll read it again to remind us because it is a good thing to remind ourselves of our sin. It says, understanding this, that the law was not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and in case you want to pull the rich young ruler card and say, all of these I've kept from birth, he makes the criteria so broad that nobody can be without excuse. And Paul says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. There is not one person in this room in the whole world that these verses don't describe. And there's not one person who stands guiltless and outside the wrath of God apart from Christ. Paul is saying this so that all people understand their need for Christ and as Paul destroys all self-righteousness that anybody could possibly possess. If you're like me, do you ever sometimes think when you die and you stand before the Lord and your fickle heart causes you to forget the God's word and the assurance and hope we have of our salvation and you say, oh, I don't know, will I be sent to heaven? Will I be sent to hell? And then you quickly start to justify yourself by your own works. You say, well, I've been pretty consistent in my Bible reading this week. I serve in Awana on Wednesday nights. I go to Sunday school and the main service. That's double church, right? I've given pretty generously to the Sowing the Seeds campaign. Heck, I even share the gospel this week. And all of those are good things that we do out of obedience to the Lord. But if any of those are done to earn righteousness or earn our salvation, listen to what Isaiah 64 says. It says, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. They are worthless in means of, means of a currency to earn something. There are a couple pastors who summarize this point better than I can, speaking of our worthiness before a holy God and our depravity. The first one is from Bodhi Bakum. He says, There is nothing in you or around you or about you that has made you worthy other than the fact that the Father has set his love upon you and he has said to the Son, Go get him. The next one is from 
pastor in the church I grew up in, speaking of man's depravity, he says, until you understand you are the whole problem, Christ can never be the whole solution. As long as you still think that you are kind of good or kind of bad or kind of need saving, you'll always be tempted to kind of earn your salvation. Maybe I'm sounding redundant, but it is so important to understand who we are before a holy God. Paul doesn't mention that he is a sinner in this passage for no reason. It is to magnify Christ, who is the source, which we had previously talked about, and the one who makes available the gift, which is our next point. The gift. Let's look at verses 13 and 14 for the gift. 13 says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So the two gifts that Paul talks about there are mercy and grace. Often two sides of the same coin. There's a commentator that describes this difference between mercy and grace well. He says, while mercy and grace in some ways overlap, it is fair to view mercy more in terms of judgment waived and grace more in terms of a positive blessing received. Paul says he was shown mercy. Why? Or because of the wages of sin, which is death. He deserved death and the eternal wrath of God, but that judgment was waived. Why? We'll get that to the next point. But ultimately because God desired to and God loved him. Look at verse 14. That's where we see the other gift of grace. Paul says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed flowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So listen to this, because this is the kind of cool stuff that you discover when you dig deeper into God's word. When Paul uses that word overflowed, speaking of God's grace, some of your Bibles might say more than abundant or poured out abundantly. All of them are speaking of God's grace. But Paul uses a Greek prefix here, which is the equivalent to us using hyper or adding hyper to a word in order to add emphasis. So for example, if we say a child is hyperactive, We're saying that they have an excess of energy. They have an abundance of energy. They have just an overflowing of activity, right? If we say somebody is hypersensitive, it means they have an overflow of sensitivity, an excess of sensitivity. So you better be careful what you say around them. Paul is saying here that God's grace is exceedingly abundant or has an excess of abundant. And praise the Lord because our sin is excessive. Romans 5.20 says, Now the law came into came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What a truth. This is especially good news for those of you who think they are too far gone to be caught under the umbrella of God's grace and mercy when his wrath comes raining down. If you are here today and in need of mercy, hear these words. God's grace can exceed your sin no matter how long, deep, or wide it has grown. Look at Paul's testimony here. If you turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ that he is who he said he is, he lived the life that um, he said he lived, that he died the death that was meant for us, that he rose again defeating sin and death, and he ascended into heaven, reigning and ruling over all things until he returns as judge, then you will be saved. No matter how high the mountain of your sin has grown, if you don't think that the waves of God's grace and mercy can't come crashing over that again and again and again, then you are wrong but it is a good thing to be wrong about. The last part of 
verse 14, Paul says, The grace of our Lord overflowed for him with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And here Paul is contrasting this false teacher's false faith and false love that is producing a bogus righteousness and false security, sense of security and salvation in the, the hearts and minds of its hearers. But Paul says that the true gospel is shared and produces genuine faith and love that are found in Christ alone. If you don't have faith in Christ, you can't have real immovable faith because it's not in the one who is eternal and sovereign over all things. If you don't have faith in, love, faith in Christ and know the love of Christ, you can't have genuine love because you don't know Christ, who is the perfect representation of love. The greatest example of grace and mercy in my life came when I was in middle school. I have to preface this story because this is um, a story that I know my mom would um, take back. The words that she says in the story, I know she would take back as all parents have something they would take back, right? Brecken's only two and I already have two things that I would take back. So he turns three here soon. I'm not going to try not to average one a year. But she is, she loves the Lord. She's been saved since. She's one of the most kind-hearted people I know who loves her Lord and Savior. She is the kind of person who ponders on that raccoon my dad hit on the way to work that morning. She's the kind of person who adopts the ugly dog off that Sarah McLaughlin commercial. Just a huge heart for the Lord and people. So this came when I was in middle school. My brother and sister were probably four or five. It was just my mom and my siblings at home, and my dad was at a church league basketball game. And I don't know, I don't remember exactly what I was doing, but the best way to describe it, I was just being sinful, disobedient, and evil. And so I looked at my brother, who was five at the time, and I said, Jacob, I hate you. And four, uh, a little boy who just looks up to his brother, probably just wants to be like him, those were hurtful words to pierce his ears and his heart at that time. And so as he ran off and told my mom what I had said, I hear her yell my name across the house, and so I scurry off to my room and close the door. Soon after that, that door opens. She says, Cole, you're packing a bag and you're going with your dad because I don't want to see you anymore. Don't, don't worry. I've watched Josh preach enough that I came prepared. <laughs> and so I don't remember much in between that, but I remember being dropped off at my dad's basketball game and we ended up at the radio station that he had to record something for the night before or for the next morning. So he's sitting in his recording studio and there's a wall with a window here and I'm sitting in this room. So I can't see him, but I can hear him or I can, I can't hear him, but I can see him. And I can tell when he picks up the phone and starts talking to my mom, right? Cause his face changes. He hears what happens and like, Oh no, game over. And so I start pondering the worst case scenarios in my mind. Did I just cause my parents to get a divorce? Will that be the last time I ever see my family under one roof again because of me? And then quickly my mind starts turning to selfish things. How long will I be grounded for? How long will it be before I play video games again? How long will it be before I sit, be able to sit comfortably? Because I know my backside is about to be raw after these spankings. And so he hangs up the phone, leaves that room, and comes into my room. And I say, okay, Dad, what's going to happen now? And his response is one word. Nothing. He goes on to share the gospel with me. He tells me about the grace and mercy that Christ has shown me. A judgment waived and a kindness bestowed. 
Is that something that we can say we have an understanding of, a full understanding of, his grace and mercy? I sure hope not. I know I don't. I never will this side of eternity, but I encourage you to dig deeper into it because the more you dig into grace and mercy, the less it makes sense and the more your love for Christ grows. Because when we look at God and we say, okay, God, what happens now after understanding our sin? Not only does he say nothing, he says, I'm going to adopt you as a son. I'm going to adopt you as a daughter. And not only that, I'm going to, be, I'm going to give you an inheritance that is eternal and that will never fade and you will be a co-heir with me and you will be with me forever. He doesn't just see us with a list of our sins with lines struck through. He doesn't just see us with our sins written on a whiteboard that we quickly wipe off so there's smudge there and you can't really read it though. So he says, okay, I can't read it. I've got to let you in. No, he sees us with Christ's righteous, perfect, sin, sinless life so that nobody is entering heaven by the skin of their teeth. Nobody is limping across those gates, but we are all entering powerfully and triumphantly, but not because of anything that we've done or nothing that was in us, but be- only because of what Christ has done. It doesn't make sense, right? That takes us to our fourth point, and these next two points will go fast, I promise. Our fourth point. Look at verse 16 as we look at the reason. Why did God do this? Verse 16 says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Why does God save people? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Because he loves sinners, because he desires to save sinners, to show us the riches of his kindness. But in this testimony, Paul chooses to magnify one attribute of Christ, and that is his patience. Why does he do that? As Paul is encouraging Timothy to preach the true gospel amongst this wayward church, he says, I know it's going to be hard, and you're probably going to be in the minority for your belief. But boldly proclaim the true gospel, and look at what his patience has done for the foremost sinner, the worst of sinners. Trust that his gospel can save anybody. We are a presumptuous people, aren't we? We presume our next meal will come. We presume that we're going to make it home after church today. We presume our loved ones will be here the next holiday. We presume on a lot of things. I think COVID really showed us how much we presume on the normalcy of everyday life. And if you are here and don't know Christ, then presume on his patience no longer. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. He has shown you and I a kindness and a patience that is far beyond what we deserve. He's allowed you and I to continue in rebellion day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, so that we could have a point like this in our lives right here where we hear the gospel and we turn from our sin and place our faith in him for our salvation. Every day we wake up and our eyes open, blood pumps through our bodies, oxygen enters our lungs. It is the Lord's kindness that is meant to draw us to repentance. That leads us to our last point, the result. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, Paul says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul ends in praise, which enters the second part of our question, right? 
Hopefully, as we've reflected on God's grace towards wretched sinners like you and me, we understand that, like Paul, we cannot help but give praise for what he has done. And there are four parts to Paul's praise here, his little doxology at the end of his testimony, in which he says that God is superior to all things. First, he says, the king of ages. He says, this is, or this is where Paul affirms God's eternal status. The Jews had two common views of, of ages. They, say, they would say that the age, the age is and the age to come. We say past, present, and future. But So either way you boil it down, we are confirming God's eternality and the fact that he exists outside of time and is sovereign over his temporal creation. Next he says immortal. God will never know death. He will never lose strength and he will never come to an end. Contrast that to his creation, which does experience decay, does experience weakness, and can't control when our end will come. Invisible. This is where we can understand that Paul is giving praise to God, the Father of the Trinity. Maybe when you hear Paul say that God is invisible, cogs start turning, verses pop up in your mind, and you say, wait a second. Verses like Colossians 1.15 pop in my head. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Or John 14.9, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Well, Wayne Grudem, Grudem's te- systematic theology defines God's invisibility like this. He says, God's invisibility means that God's total essence, all of his being, will never be able to be seen by us. Yet God still shows himself to us through visible, created things. And we have examples of this all across the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Aaron's brought this up before. He said it's called a theophany when God reveals part of himself to his people. So we can look at the pillar of cloud during the day, the pillar of fire at night, the burning bush, just to name a few. But we can ultimately look at Jesus Christ, who is the most perfect manifestation of God, that we will have the side of eternity. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Fourth, he says, the only God. He says, there is one God here that deserves the praise, and that is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the triune God. And I don't understand how all that works, but I know Aaron does, so when he gets back from Utah, you can go ahead and ask him about the Trinity. But I know that Paul gives praise to God the Father for sovereignly intervening to save sinners, to Christ for completing and carrying out that work, and to the Holy Spirit for convicting us of sin and conforming us to the image of Christ. Paul understands that it is in Christ alone that our hope for salvation is found. As Paul understands that as the source, Christ has given the gift of mercy and grace to wretched, undeserving sinners so that we may look at Christ and marvel at how patient and loving he has been with us, that it must produce praise and worship to our King. So I ask again, do you understand the gift you've been given? If so, it must produce praise and worship to Christ. I'll close with this. If you haven't received this gift yet, then friend, I plead with you, turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ. I know I said it fast earlier, so let me say it again slower. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ that he is who he said he is, the sinless son of God, fully God, fully man. Trust that he lived the life that we could not live. That is the perfect sinless life that fulfilled God's holy law perfectly. Trust that he died the death that we could not die, the death that appeased and satisfied the wrath of God. Trust that he rose again from the dead and that he was not the victim of the wages of sin, but the victor over sin.
And finally, trust that he has ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over all things until he returns again as the righteous judge. Guys, the Lord is Lord, regardless of how strongly you believe that to be true. And so when he returns or you, your time comes to an end, he will be, either be your Lord and Savior or your Lord and Judge. Will you pray with me? Lord, we look at your testimony in Paul's life and thank you that you can save anybody. Nobody is outside of the reaches of your grace and mercy. Lord, help us to understand what you've done for us. And in helping us understand, illuminating your word to us, may it cause obedience and praise and worship to the only one who deserves it. Lord, use your word to transform our lives and to increase our love for you. Thank you for this time. Amen.